0: From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke. And in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Over the past several years, few sectors of our society have garnered more attention or generated more controversy than law enforcement and public safety. My guest today, Virginia Gleason, has spent more than 30 years working in these fields as a non-sworn officer, a trainer, and a prosecuting attorney. Her wide range of experiences and positions includes serving as deputy director of the Oakland, California Police Department. There, as head of the Bureau of Services, she had responsibility for the department's communications and records division, as well as personnel, fiscal services, information technology, and property and evidence sections. Earlier in Seattle, Virginia served as criminal justice policy advisor for that city's mayor and was the chief strategic advisor to Seattle's police department. She's also held senior leadership roles within the King County Sheriff's Office in Washington State and the Port of Seattle Police Department and was a senior deputy prosecuting attorney in the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. In our conversation today, Virginia will share her views on the state of the law enforcement workforce, ways they can improve their relationship with the communities they serve, and how police departments and state and local governments can use better data more effectively to communicate where public safety needs are being met and where, when, and why they are not. Virginia approaches her work with a powerful, and for me at least, contagious sense of optimism, believing that every crisis presents us with an opportunity. I hope you enjoy hearing what she has to say just as much as I did. Virginia Gleason, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So you have a very interesting background of uh, diverse interests, but about 25 or so years ago, your work really began to focus specifically on law enforcement, criminal justice system. Why did you take such an interest?
1: I've had great opportunities to participate in the parts of government that impact the quality of people's lives. My focus in all of my jobs has been finding ways to use the skills and education to reduce suffering of people and i found that working in law enforcement was an area where i could have a significant impact in reducing suffering
0: amazing well so speaking of suffering in the last few years there've been a lot of concerns about policing and you know some of the terrible things that have happened on video that have you know catalyzed the country to think differently about law enforcement And I understand from your work, one of the things you're concerned about is that there's a lack of of good, trusted, impartial information about policing and that that is actually part of the problem that people have in terms of the perception of policing. Can you explain that to our listeners?
1: When I have meetings with the community or when I'm instructing, I find out that there are a lot of opinions that are very polarized about public safety. And- when you have the opportunity to to really spend time with people and find out what they are basing those opinions on. It became apparent to me that a lot of it was based on anecdotes or news headlines, but they didn't really know the facts behind it. And there was a time when I was working at a department talking with a community about some of their concerns about internal accountability for the department I was working for, and a, and this was a pro-law enforcement group I was speaking to. And they said, well, the problem is the numbers of times that you are killing young, unarmed men, often who are members of uh, the local minority group, whether Hispanic or African-American, and that that's why we are losing our trust in your, your profession. And that particular department I'd been working for about three and a half years We had had two shootings that were fatal encounters with members of the public, and the scenario they're talking about had nothing to do with either of them. And these were good people who wanted to support public safety, and I realized that they didn't have the information. And then I thought, I looked inward, and I was responsible for a bureau of my department that had... All the IT and all the facts and all the crime data, and I wasn't doing a good job sharing that information with policymakers and with the public. So I, I began to feel that it is an obligation of the people in public safety to really share their information, but to do it in a way that is objective and easy to understand. And most criminal justice data doesn't—that that's not easy to do. It, it is a very important obligation of the system that has so much power over people's lives to really share that information in a way that people can trust.
0: And is that part of it, that the information is there, but it's not shared? There's not enough transparency? Is that part of the issue, transparency between police and police data and the community?
1: Well, a few years ago, they started a police data initiative, which was very well intended. But it puts information out in these public data portals that are very hard to use, and the numbers are so large and the system is so complex that it doesn't really give you the information you need in a way that it's usable. So working with a local tech company in Seattle and then uh, spending some time looking at police information that was easy to understand, I started focusing on how we can share the information in a way that is understandable. The whole criminal justice system is so complex and it involves a number of moving pieces. So there's a, a great book called Making Numbers Count that helped me envision different ways to show the data that was still honest, but would put it in context of all the contacts that people have in the criminal justice system so that they weren't focusing so much on a very rare occasion. And don't get me wrong, those rare occasions, some of them are just horrible and they need to be fixed and we need to look where in the system it's best to fix those.
0: Right. No, and I'm glad you said that because I, I, I know that your, your position is not that terrible things don't happen. It's just, they don't happen in the numbers that a lot of people are led to believe um, and so there's a lot of good that's being done as well. And so a lot of your work, I know, is to address those bad things that have happened and try to make sure they don't happen again, but at the same time to help educate folks um, about the reality of the data. One thing you've said a few times is you use the word complex or complexity. And I hadn't realized it until a discussion last year that I was involved in just how fragmented U.S. policing is, that that. These police forces are incredibly independent as you get down into even small towns. There's not always even much influence from the state as opposed to other parts of our government apparatus where you have the federal government, you have a state government, it's all sort of lines up. Can you explain to us that the policing is quite fragmented as you get down into individual markets, isn't that right?
1: That is correct. There's 18,000 individual police agencies in the United States. And they are governed by a patchwork of rules that is very different. And the majority of the departments we have in the country are have fewer than 20 officers. So we are not supporting them in the way that is appropriate for the, the complex issues they have to deal with. And you have a 20-person department maybe that doesn't have a, a full-time IT apparatus and they don't know how to create some of these tools to share information with their community and when we look at the number of the small departments and the types of resources we give them it's all well intended but it's not really helping them either do internal accountability quickly or to share information with the public so that's really my the the departments where I feel this great need and great attachment to are kind of the small and medium-sized departments but that's you know, 90% of the departments we have in the United States.
0: With my very first question, I asked Virginia why she went into law enforcement, and her response really struck me. She didn't say it was to keep our streets safe or put bad people behind bars. Instead, she came to this line of work, she said, to impact the quality of people's lives and reduce suffering. She understands that the public safety system has huge power over people's lives, and she's made it her life's work to make it better. While she does that, she's focused in part on her concern that a lot of the valid frustrations people have about the police are made worse by the spread of polarized opinions, stories, and anecdotes, and not based on good data about the numerous interactions that police have within their communities. Not only does law enforcement play a prominent role in our society, It's part of a remarkably complex system. More than 18,000 police departments across the country, with the majority of these consisting of fewer than 20 officers. I asked Virginia to explore this some more. If you could wave a magic wand and start over, would you have more structure so that a small town police group, you know, reported up to the county, reported up to the state, or some other way of doing it? Or do you think that that sort of independence and small size Makes sense.
1: I think it's really a state by state option, and there's very different ways of uh, that cities feel their independence and individuality. And I think when you go from the East Coast to the West Coast, it's very different. In on the East Coast, when I work with small town police departments, they feel very strongly that they want to have local control and local independence. And there's a larger amount of participation in the civic process. As you go west, you see less and less of that, and you see more government control. And I think there's a a lot of historical writings about why we have that difference in civic involvement, not just individual choice, but also the way the systems are set up. So I think there is a good balance that we could have in those two things, with some more integrated oversight for accountability related to things like certification. So police officers, when they have their police officer certification, it's sort of like a bar license. It's a license to do that.
0: Right. So one of the things you uh, wrote about in a paper recently, you used a phrase uh, calling for a factual toolbox for conversations about policing. Are there specific facts that you'd want people to know about policing that would be surprising that that would sort of go at misconceptions that people just carry around with themselves when it comes to thinking about policing
1: i think yeah so yes and i think that having uh understanding of the number of contacts that police have with individuals the results of those contacts most of the time when police have contact with a member of the public There is no controversy. Everything goes fine. And the transaction ends without any, without any problem. The other thing that's interesting is there is a sense that the police are out looking for problems and they're focusing on marginalized groups to make contact. In most departments the majority of the contacts that the police have with individuals aren't ones that they choose. People have called in and said, please, I've noticed something. Um, I want you to look at this disturbance that's happening somewhere. So the police aren't choosing the people they have contact with. So when we see these disparities that don't match up with census data, there's a concern that that disparity equals discrimination. And I think if you, come up with ways to show the data, you can determine whether or not that's the case. Sometimes disparities do mean discrimination, and they are showing that there is inappropriate stereotypes that police have about individuals and that they are not policing in a real fair and just manner. But if you look at whether the police, what we call an on-view contact, or something where the police are being able to choose who they have contact with, and then you compare that to who is calling and asking for them to respond to an area. I think that's helpful, and that takes a little bit of data sorting and uh, collecting the data at the beginning, and then being able to explain that uh, later on.
0: So, would would most or, yeah, would most police? organizations have that data, collect that data, or is that something that you are advocating that people at least start collecting so that they can be shared ultimately?
1: I think it's good to collect data, but then there's this balancing you have to do between responding to the calls and dealing with individuals and then uh, having complicated forms to fill out. And we're just learning some different ways to collect that data. So, Again, I think most legislators have very well-intended legislation that they're putting out about collecting the data. Sometimes I don't think they understand how that's going to impact the day-to-day activities of an officer. So if you have a a five-minute contact with someone, but you have 15 minutes of form to fill out, that's impacting how much you can do your job. Uh, I I recently taught a class last week, in Colorado where they're talking about some new data collection and most of my students were from small departments and that was one of their single biggest issues is how is this data collection going to impact their ability to serve their community because of the amount of time it will take and the number of additional forms they need to complete.
0: Before this conversation, I hadn't thought about the notion that most of the times that police officers have encounters with the community, it's in response to a call. Virginia explains that this dynamic can cause challenges when studying data about the appropriateness of law enforcement interactions. That said, Virginia is very clear-eyed about the fact that problems do exist in law enforcement and continues to work towards solutions. One of these is the collection and dissemination of data. And while she assumes good intentions when government officials call for more collection of information from police departments, she's also concerned about the time required to produce these materials. These paperwork burdens described here remind me of what you hear from overworked healthcare providers and education professionals as well. Their jobs are demanding enough, and not only is the paperwork time consuming, it also takes them away from the work they signed up to do, trying to improve people's lives. And now, back to our conversation. You described points of contact, and I think coming out of folks' concerns about policing and the defund police movements and and those sorts of things, there have been questions about what calls police should be responsible for answering, what types of calls. And some have said, you know, there are times when it would be more appropriate for a social worker who is unarmed and doesn't come with flashing lights versus a police officer who might you know, heighten the situation and not make it better just by their presence. Do you have a point of view on that? And and would you advocate for changing the way we think about how we deploy the police in our communities?
1: Absolutely. And I have never met any law enforcement personnel who are opposed to having additional resources to address these types of calls. And part of the reason is, When you look at the entire system of how people have contact with the police, many of the contacts that police have with individuals are the result of failing social systems that have created situations so that people are having those contacts with the police. And especially as it relates to mental illness and the lack of of helpful and meaningful treatment that there is for people who are experiencing mental illness, the same thing with Uh, Individuals who are experiencing homelessness, police respond to where they are called and they respond to the situation. There's, I can't think of any group of people who wants more for there to be a solution to the mental illness and homelessness crisis than police because they inherit all these failed safety nets. The problem has come when it's an either or, sort of a zero sum game where we can give all these resources to help. Uh, address homelessness, mental illness, but that's because we're gonna take the resources away from the police. And I think when we frame the discussion that way, it, it creates a very polarized discussion where we need to be providing both of those things. And once we've created those other safety nets and we have the other resources available, then maybe we can talk about cutting way back on police budgets. But until that time, I think that we're unnecessarily creating a, an antagonistic discussion about you know, these alternative response options.
0: It's very interesting. So you've referred a few times to your teaching. I'd love to talk some more about that. So the kind of consulting work that you do and teaching that you do, Describe to could you describe to our audience sort of a situation where, you know, a police force hires you. Why have they hired you? What kind of training are you being asked to do? And what have you learned from that training? Because you do it all over the country. I'm sure it's very eye-opening, back to what we said about how decentralized this is and how different forces might be uh, across the across the country. Could you talk about that?
1: So I work for an organization called FBI Lita, which is a training organization that is, it is not part of the FBI, but it is affiliated with the FBI. And we have a menu of trainings that we deliver. Individual departments or states will hire us to come and train. The two classes that I teach the most, one is uh, internal investigations and the other is a brand new class that just started this month, which is a version of DEI training. We call it the Culture and Diversity Institute. And What's interesting about those trainings is they're they're based in the same principles, which is we are public servants. We need to be accountable for our actions. We need to understand internally and externally how to use our authority in a way that is just and fair and transparent, and then talk about what are the the basic principles of the social contract we have between the police and the public and our employees. And what I find around the country is I have really never found a person who went into policing or public safety for anything other than wanting to help the community. And so that changes over time and people become cynical and polarized. Often people are being sent to my class as punishment, and so they're coming with a, a you know arms crossed and not open to new ideas. But I think that if we get back to the basics, using some of the principles of people uh, like uh, uh, Simon Sinek and people who talk about what a gift it is to be able to serve the public, we can start to peel away some of the the defensiveness and really talk about how we can public safety individuals have a huge amount of power and how we can take that power and really get back to the reason that we got into this job in the first place. And that is the same everywhere in the country, large agencies, small agencies, the, the way that they, and the tools they have to to kind of refresh themselves and um, get focused again, vary a lot uh, by different departments. It, if they are coming from a place where they have a mayor or a city council that has made it clear that they think their police department is rotten, they're very defensive. But a lot of places, especially small cities, there is a lot of support. They're just trying to figure out how they can how they can do it better.
0: So you mentioned sometimes people come to your class as punishment and you also talked about internal investigation. So are these are these police officers who have had an incident or have an attitude or what, what kind of folks would come to you as punishment um, and which class would they be sent to as part of that punishment?
1: So the, when I teach internal investigations, it's usually the investigators or or someone high up in their command group just wanting to make sure that their internal accountability process is using best practices. Uh, but sometimes it, it might be that they are supervising an internal investigations unit And they've made some bad mistakes and either missed something important or they've paid out a lawsuit or they realize that they have some what I call kind of internal dry rot in their department and they've missed it. So those people come and I try to show here are best practices to do internal accountability, but to do it in a way that is fair to the public and also fair to your employees. The other class, the Cultural and Diversity Institute, I had some students in my class last week who were sent as punishment for saying something or doing something that was deemed to be inappropriate. And they ten- they ended up being some of the most valued input to my class because we. I try to give people the confidence that we can have open discussions and they can say what they think. We use Chatham House rules in in the class. And after about a day of talking about across the country, why there are legitimate reasons that people do not trust the police, the conversations were really very helpful. We also talked a little bit about stereotypes and how when we look at a small slice of the world that people in law enforcement have contact with all the time, how we develop unhealthy stereotypes that do not always help us make, do the best investigations or make the best decisions because we don't see the whole breadth of a community. We tend to see the people who are having problems and it changes us.
0: It's really interesting, and it's it is sort of an optimistic approach when you think about bringing them back to why they went into this field in the first place. Um, you know, and create a sense of just remember why are you here. And I, I use healthcare as an example again. I have some experience there where physicians, nurses, they're burned out, they're frustrated, the patients are becoming abusive, and it's a real issue. But it's helpful sometimes to at least try to remember why why did you become a nurse in the first place, and try to come back to that. It's not easy, and I, it sound, sounds like policing is very similar that way.
1: Sometimes when I'm talking to legislative bodies or to police executives, I actually use the healthcare as an example, um, because in an emergency room, it's very similar to responding to a police call. You're not picking your customers. You are having contact with someone on a day that could be the absolute worst day of their life. And that is what you see. Um, Dispatchers and people who work in 911 system have the same experience and it wears on you. So one of the parts that I've integrated into all of my teaching is to give people a toolbox. So there's some wellness issues to help you stay well and to, take care of yourself so that that can help you see the best in other people. But also, if you are dealing with particular groups of of individuals that um, you're having contact with, how can you maybe learn more about them that will help you understand their needs as well? So we talk about different ways of making contact with people so that you can see them in, in maybe their best days this is a great opportunity for communities that have a Muslim population to to celebrate Ramadan with members of your community when they break their fast in the evening. Uh, When I mentioned that to police officers, they were nervous because they weren't familiar with the culture. And I think what I recommend that go to a iftar and break fast call and be respectful and ask if you can join in and very few people have ever received any response other than open arms, please join us, celebrate with us, learn our community. And that is a, a big icebreaker with a community that is largely misunderstood in our country.
0: That's a great example because I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from from the state of Maine where it surprises people sometimes how many first generation immigrants we have from Africa. Many of them are Muslim. And and immigrants immigrant communities sort of by definition won't have representation in the police force because the community hasn't been here long enough to train and develop and have police officers. So there's this automatic built-in difference between that community and the folks who are uh, charged with law enforcement. So breaking down those barriers, it seems to me, is a huge opportunity.
1: And I think the more individuals know each other in a setting that is not responding to a call and crisis and crying and uh, the better it is right now there is a, a in, in some departments, not all departments, there is a shortage of, of frontline officers and it is creating fewer opportunities to spend the time to get to know people. Uh, my husband, who I think is the best police officer there's ever been in the country, 40 years at Seattle Police Department, he, he worked the entire time he was as a police officer really spending time thinking about the human condition. And I remember something he told me many, many years ago, that everyone wants to be loved, everyone wants to be forgiven, and everyone wants to you know, be heard. And if you don't know what else to do, if you fall back on those three things, almost always you'll do the right thing.
0: There are so many important subjects to talk about here, so please bear with me. The first is failing social systems, and it's remarkable how often this comes up when you look at some of the challenges we face in this country. On an earlier Blue Sky episode, we spoke about education with Rob Watson, and he described how many of these same issues, homelessness, poverty, mental illness, create significant challenges for our school systems and educators. Likewise, with Dr. Tammy Benton, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She described the huge and too often unmet demand for pediatric mental health specialists. Failed safety nets put intense pressure on so many service organizations. If we're gonna make sustainable progress as a society, it seems to me that we need to look upstream at the root causes of these issues at the same time that we try to improve our responses to them. And I love hearing Virginia talk about her training Encouraging her audience to start with why, as author Simon Sinek would recommend. Public safety officers and their departments have huge power over people. And individuals working in the field should always remember why they joined in the first place. To help people and keep communities safe. Internal investigations are a fascinating field. These are situations fraught with tension and potentially distrust. See the classic Al Pacino film Serpico if you haven't already. When taking these situations on, Virginia adopts an attitude of transparency and openness. She mentions Chatham House rules, and if you're not familiar with these, they are a set of guidelines that encourage openness by having participants agree that if they share with others a detail or opinion expressed in a conversation or meeting, they will not disclose the identity of the speaker. In today's culture where people are often hesitant to say what's on their mind for fear of retribution, these rules are a great place to start. And I'm a huge fan of assuming good intentions. We're all susceptible to being overly suspicious of others and seeking out chances to see people at their best is a great thing to do. Understanding culture is huge also. And we know that working with immigrants who are new to this country can be fraught with tension. Virginia's thoughts on law enforcement officers getting to know these communities in times when they're not responding to a call are really encouraging and make a ton of sense. Of course, staff shortages and other obligations make this difficult, but the work is worth the effort. And how about the words Virginia attributed to her husband, a retired police officer? He said, everyone wants to be loved, everyone wants to be forgiven, and everyone wants to be heard. If you don't know what else to do, fall back on those three things. Incredible advice, regardless of your chosen profession, or place in the world. Now, finally, getting back to our conversation, Virginia turns to how she trains law enforcement to respond when situations are more problematic and life-threatening than just a routine visit.
1: There are also very dangerous and very complicated situations that they're coming in contact with, and they're not always gonna do it right, but if it's mistakes of the heart um, are different than mistakes of the head. And really, if we can focus on, you know, caring for people and using principles there, there's a, a professor at Yale named Tom Tyler, who has developed a whole body of research called procedural justice. And it's very applicable to law enforcement, where you let people have a voice, you let them tell what their concerns are, whether it's at a traffic stop where they're explaining why they're speeding or their tabs are expired. I think that is the most important, giving people a voice, letting them know that they will be treated fairly based on the facts of their situation, and that the system is trustworthy. Even people who are given tickets after a traffic stop where those things happen, they're more satisfied with that transaction they had than if they're not given the opportunity to explain what has happened. And I think those are just good principles of life.
0: Sure. Absolutely. And have you been brought into police departments that have recently had one of these terrible experiences where you know something awful happens and it's known around the country around that area and and you've got police officers who are either in trouble for that they're being punished they they may be not so great cops that need to be moved out they may be great cops who need to be rehabilitated I mean can you talk about some of the more challenging cases you've had to tackle.
1: Well, one of my neighboring departments here in Washington has three officers who are currently, um, they've been charged with the death of, of someone who died in custody. And it is very hard on the department. And it's not that they're all rallying around tactics that maybe were not good, but it's how do we recover from this? And a long time ago, about 20 years ago, their police chief killed his wife and then killed himself. And so spending time, people, with with departments and saying, how do we regroup from this? If we do have individuals in our department, how can we go about putting systems together that we can identify those people before something really bad happens? And it's a lot of self-reflection that can be very hard because it often makes you look at your hiring process, your training process, and whether or not people who are who are moving in influential areas in your department uh, have risk factors that you should be identifying early. And that's where some of the data, data tools can be really helpful as long as you're implementing them in a way that is fair. So when I talked about those procedural justice principles, when I train and I map a lot of systems, I have this graphic that I use to say, here is an opportunity that you need to take a step back, because this is a complex, get up on the balcony, like we talk about, and say, am I creating this policy or this training or this decision in a way that meets these procedural justice principles? And I think it's uh, something, if you're willing to honestly look at, at how things got to be the way they are, that you can do a lot of self correction. And I think showing that graphically is a lot different than just having a, a chat session, but really showing it in a way that is evidence of a, a willingness to self-evaluate and self-correct and to go to the public and say, we were making some training mistakes, and now we think that we want to do better in the future to serve you better.
0: Yeah, the, the data in in uh, in healthcare suggests that when there's been malpractice, there used to be a lot of hospitals who would. Once that happens, everyone goes into their camps, and everyone lawyers up, and the patient does, and the doctor does, and everything's quiet. Versus today, more and more hospitals are saying, when we make a mistake, we're going to study it. We're gonna we're going to talk to the the family of the person who was harmed or the person who was harmed, and all the and people at first thought, oh, that's a terrible idea. You're admitting fault. It's going to Blow up, and just the opposite happens. There's much more. The, the, if you do have to settle the case, the the cost is less. People are they just want to be heard. They want to hear you apologize. They want you to acknowledge the mistake and show that you're making steps to correct it from happening again in the future. So it sounds like that's part of what you try to advocate in policing as well. Yeah,
1: very much. And one of the comments that often happens in class when they talk about These numbers of prosecutions there have been of police is a comment that many more people die each year by mistakes that are made in medical systems, but they're not prosecuting emergency room doctors and they're not advocating that more people get prosecuted. I think they're using it as a comparison is there are some times when there are mistakes made and let's figure out a better way to recover from them than the types of conversations we're having
0: now. I would think some of the challenge in your work, Virginia, is, is working with legislators or, or helping police departments work with legislators, the media, people who have had little or no experience in policing, right? And it's a very, very specialized uh, type of work. I, I can't imagine being a police officer. I remember um, in a driver's education class, when they were talking about what to do when you get pulled over and they said something about, you know, keeping your hands visible and all that stuff. And I'll never forget what the person said. They said, oftentimes that police officer might be as nervous as you are because they don't know what, what they're coming on. And it's always stayed with me because I always think, well, they've got all the power there. So I, I wonder if you, if you've done work trying to educate folks who, who, legislate, work with, supervise in some cases, police departments to better help them better understand what the life of a police officer is like?
1: We we do. And unfortunately now with short staffing, that's harder to do, but I do, I think there are ways that are, that you can help the public understand better. A lot of departments have citizen academies where someone can Uh, go through a six or eight week program a couple nights a week and they can understand what's involved with the training, what the risks are. Working with legislators is more difficult because the criminal justice system is so complex that it doesn't match up very well with the election cycle or with the budget cycle. And there are people who, uh, I call them conflict entrepreneurs, there are people who they, they run on the conflict. And if the conflict isn't there, their, their platform for having their voice heard in the community is gone. So there are legislators who thrive, and, and people in general, who thrive on the controversy. I think that's a small number of people, but they have a very outsized and loud voice. And the media, in my opinion, is really not the problem. I think that we have an obligation to find ways to share objective facts and truths with the media. And we make it too hard, knowing that their news cycle has gone from let me, uh, I'll get something to you before printing time. So you have till two o'clock in the morning to you have 15 minutes to get this information out. And they're this tech company that I'm working with that's based here in Seattle. They are true believers of uh, having technology be a helpful tool to help everyone do their jobs and see information in a way that's helpful. They have some really talented data visualization people who've spent the time to say, what is the best way for us to get this information to the public? So we've looked at ways using maps. We've looked at ways using Uh, other types of of graphic tools that the media can have access to without having to contact the department. So these public safe facing dashboards mostly. And I think the media most of the time wants to have correct information out there. We just make it really hard for them to get the information.
0: There's more great advice here from Virginia that applies beyond law enforcement. In the swirl of our complicated lives and professions, taking time to, quote, get up on the balcony for a better, more distant view is a great idea and a metaphor I'd not heard of. I also love Virginia's expression, conflict entrepreneurs. These people seem to be increasingly loud voices in our society, and it's my belief that the best thing we can do with these types is to deny them the oxygen of our attention. A previous Blue Sky guest, Kevin Kelly, would suggest when confronted with these types that we simply choose not to be outraged. I also appreciate Virginia's optimistic embrace of new technologies. Working in the same field for a long time can make people's opinions rigid and less open to change, but Virginia stays interested in and open to what's new. Getting back to our conversation, I asked Virginia to talk some more about data and how, while it's important to produce and share, it's harder for smaller police departments to produce it.
1: NYPD and Chicago PD, they have huge, big IT departments, but remembering that the large number of departments in the country are very small and they don't have sophisticated IT departments, so creating an accelerator or a toolbox that is useful to the very smallest departments um, and something that can be scaled up is very helpful. And so working with this company and the, I keep mentioning them, Slalom, they're a local Seattle company, but they're, they're all across the nation. They have really decided that they want one of the, the solutions and part of the value that they bring to governments is to bring them ideas that maybe they haven't thought of before that are easy to implement and they can start sharing public safety data with internally so people can self-correct as well as externally. So we've got a couple samples that are in the works that are, I think, changing the way the media, the public, and the legislatures have information to use to make these important decisions.
0: It's really interesting. And it sounds like it can also, like you said, be a great internal tool, because as you said, these departments are far from perfect. They've got things they need to work on. And lacking that data for their own assessment is a huge issue, I would think. So this is a big positive all the way around. Yeah.
1: So there's a whole internal accountability process that we call early intervention systems. And the idea is that you want to look to see if someone is having a number of negative things happen, whether it's they're crashing their car or they're getting complaints or they're using force or they're missing work. What can we do to look to see if there's a problem? A lot of times you're going to see all those individual data points and there's no problem at all. So we don't want to automatically say that someone triggers because they have three of these and two of these and they're a problem. What it is is really an opportunity to say you need to look more closely. That person may need some retraining or they may need a award a or a commendation. So you don't want to assume that just because there is this the, they're, they're an outlier somewhere that there's a problem. It is just a supervisory tool that you can use to do more internal uh, internal analysis.
0: So with all the challenges that face police departments today and um, all the work that you do, in addition to coming back to reminding yourself that these folks went into this line of work for the right reasons, and now I, I I see you get excited talking about technology. What what are this, some of the other things that make you optimistic as you approach this really challenging work that you do? Because I, I know you and I know that you're a very optimistic, can-do, positive person and you're working in a very tough field. So what are some of the things that that keep you so optimistic?
1: I think that we have a lot of people in public safety who are looking at the the reduced number of people we have going into law enforcement as an opportunity to expand the kind of people who come into law enforcement and to look at different ways of delivering service. So even though we suffered for a while with this significantly reduced number of people who are applying and staying in law enforcement, I think that there are a lot of really enlightened police leaders and cities who are saying, this is, our, this is our new reality. Let's figure out how we can, an expression I use is democratize public safety to really broaden the number of people who are going to help make communities safe. And I think that breaks down a lot of barriers between law enforcement personnel and the public when we start expanding the people who get to come into the law enforcement tent. I think that Civilianizing a lot of functions of policing not only has a financial benefit, but it also broadens the experiences that there are within departments and some of the initiatives that are out there to uh, create community based safety, because ultimately safety is all of our responsibility. When you look at whatever version of the hierarchy of needs, safety is one of the most significant and important needs that everyone has and how can we broaden the answer to public safety to include everyone which I think breaks down some of the barriers with the public is more effective it's more efficient so we have this great opportunity right now that I think we should should use and um, I'm excited about the future of public safety, and sometimes you have to kind of hit the, uh, a crisis point for people to be open to look at all those new opportunities.
0: The ability to see opportunities coming out of a crisis is a classic hallmark of an optimistic take on life. People will do terrible things resulting in bad outcomes. That's a given. But how we respond and seize the chance to improve is where we all can make positive difference. Virginia has a great idea when it comes to democratizing public safety. The more we can make this a shared community responsibility and break down barriers, the better off we'll all be. Now back to the final minutes of our conversation, picking up after I asked Virginia a question about how she sees broadening the law enforcement and public safety workforce.
1: Part of it will be having... Individuals without police commissions have more roles in police departments. Just, and again, medical is a great example. We've broadened the levels and the uh, expertise of different people in healthcare to provide more service to more people. Uh, I'm an example. I was a bureau chief at a couple of my departments as a non sworn person. I supervised sworn people, I had hundreds of people in my bureau. And that was new at almost all the departments where I worked, that they've never had a person with my type of experience there. The other place where I think we can make some changes is to allow for part-time work. We know that there's a huge value in having more women in policing. Policing schedules are are very complicated and they are not always compatible with having families and maybe having daycare obligations or school obligations. And I've seen some things in the UK and also in Canada where there are either job share or part-time options that are available in police departments, which give people with families, whether it's women or, or anyone with children, an opportunity to participate in the public safety sphere and still have a family. And I think that's very helpful. Also doing a very careful data informed look at your hiring and your backgrounding processes. So one of the projects that I love doing the most with the department is doing one of those detailed mappings about how they're recruiting, who they're bringing in, who they're screening out, how we are looking at age-related decision-making. So doing something stupid when you're 17 is a lot different than doing something stupid when you're 30. So there's a couple of great neuroscientists who have contributed some information to law enforcement hiring about age-related decision-making. So, for example, um, knowing that your brain develops at a certain rate and that there are risk-taking factors when you're a teenager, for example, that don't necessarily reflect the types of risk you would take later on, is something that is a new new thinking in law enforcement. And I think that also helps broaden the the types of people and uh, allows some people who maybe haven't made the best decisions in their life, but they're doing better now, to be part of of public safety and I think there's a huge value in having those people in departments.
0: Absolutely. It's it's another form of almost second chance opportunities that people deserve uh with with the right checks obviously with the right background checks but like you said maybe taking those a little bit differently depending on the the timing of some of these bad decisions.
1: I call that my money ball hiring. So I I I would try to explain to them cuz of course I'm a huge baseball fan. Money ball hiring finding those diamonds in the rough that other people are not taking that are just right for your organization.
0: I love that. And then training them properly, and then they'll be incredibly loyal, hardworking, great people. Um, is there anything else you'd want our listeners to know about um, the future of policing and folks who who go about their day being very concerned about the things they see and read and hear about policing that that you'd like them to hear that's a little bit more Optimistic and and hopeful in terms of the work that you're doing and the changes you're starting to see in police departments around the country?
1: For anyone who's concerned about public safety, I think the best thing to do is to learn more about it, but to learn more about it directly from the people providing the service. Go on a ride along, participate in a, a Citizens Academy, ask for more data from your departments show up at public hearings and and hear what people have to say. So I think if people become more engaged and get personally involved, they can help craft better decisions. I don't think they're going to love everything that they hear, but maybe they can help be part of a solution that is really uh, much more effective because we know the, the types of things we did the last couple of years They're all well-intended, but they're not having the positive effects that we wanted. So let's be open-minded on both sides and try to do better.
0: It's a great message and a great place to end. Virginia Gleason, I can't thank you enough for your time, for the great work you're doing, the important work you're doing. And I really appreciate you joining us on the Blue Sky Podcast today.
1: Thank you very much, Bill. It was a great opportunity to talk about something that I'm very passionate about and appreciate that people are willing to look at optimism and uh, how we can make things better for everyone.
0: Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. Once again, Virginia offers great ideas here about how to improve the public safety and law enforcement professions. In terms of workforce, making these fields more attractive to women and offering more flexible schedules makes a lot of sense. And for those of us in the broader community, trying to understand our police departments better, even going on ride-alongs, is definitely something worth doing. And another thing I observed about Virginia in our conversation reflects a theme I'm seeing repeatedly from guests on Blue Sky. She, like these others, is an avid reader and constant learner. In today's conversation alone, Virginia made reference to neuroscience, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Moneyball, Simon Sinek, and more. She doesn't just drive for a deep knowledge of her chosen field. She also tries to absorb from other disciplines and brings that diverse learning to her remarkable work on making our community safer. It's a great model for all of us to follow I hope you enjoyed and were inspired by my conversation with Virginia Gleason. If you haven't already subscribed to the Blue Sky Podcast, you might want to do so and be sure not to miss any upcoming episodes. And we'd appreciate it if you have the time to give our series a review or rating, and also consider following the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.